All right, and kids are dismissed. If you got kids that are going to kids church, they can go out now and they'll come back soon enough. So good morning, as I said before, my name is Doug. I'm the campus pastor here at East Campus, and it's a real joy to be able to be with you this morning. Um, it is Christmas season. Maybe you haven't noticed, and we're super excited about that here at East. I hope you are too. I know that um, for many of us, this time of year is very exciting. Um, it can also be hard for some of us as well as it brings back maybe some painful memories or um, there's a variety of reasons why um, these times of year can be difficult. And so our prayer, our hope is that as we come together and we reflect on the reality of Jesus coming to earth to save us from our sins, that um, we would be reminded of how much God loves us, um, how awesome our God is. And regardless of sort of what this season means for you personally, that um, you would not lose sight of what it means for us um, sort of theologically, all right? And then that would sort of draw us back to the Lord in worship. So th- we're doing things a little different here at East. Um, during this time, we've been walking through the book of Acts this past semester, and we're taking a break from that, and we're sort of highlighting some different verses, some significant passages which uh, sh- sort of speak to us and reveal to us how significant it is that God came to be with us, all right? And so uh, as a result, we're rotating around a little bit as, as preachers. Last week, I was at, at Central Campus and preached this message. Next week, Pastor Mark will be here, and the, the message he's preaching at Central today, he'll preach here next week. And so if you're trying to get away from me, just show up here next week, all right? And I won't be here, all right? Um, this morning, we get the wonderful opportunity to look at God's Word as it comes to us in the Gospel of John. Um, chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. And so um, Natalie did a wonderful job of reading it for us um, sort of in context. And we're going to um, zoom in specifically in chapter 1 um, on verses 9 and 13. So you'll be greatly helped. I think the words are um, on the screen here. But you'll be greatly helped if you have a copy of God's Word in front of you this morning. I'll read these verses again, and we will just jump right in. John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. These words are good news for us this morning. I don't know about you, but have you ever found yourself being in a place where you've thought maybe just for a second you've questioned, do I belong here? Maybe you felt out of place in a specific context. I remember a number of years ago when I first heard about bubble tea, um, I thought I'd check it out. You know, let's go see what this bubble tea is all about, right? So I walked into a bubble tea, I don't know what you call that place, shop, a place where you buy it. And I thought, okay, let me just see what this is about. And I looked around. I saw the, the, the menu, the options, and I had no idea 
what was happening. I had no idea what the words meant and I just sort of acted like I forgot something and left. I felt wholly out of place. Now, praise God and his providence, I took time to try it and to step outside of what I was comfortable with and really have come to love it. It's wonderful, you should check it out. But in that moment, I felt as if in that shop, looking at that menu, I did not belong and it was uncomfortable. Maybe you felt like that before. See, the reality is belonging is an essential, it's a primary human need. Beyond food and shelter, nothing promotes human flourishing like having a people and a place to which you belong. Research confirms that income level, marriage, children, and perceived security all pale in comparison to belonging in promoting sustained happiness. As many have said before, and I'll say once again, the reality is, as humans, we long to belong. And the good news that comes to us from John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, is that because of Christmas, this is the big idea this morning, the big idea of the text, because of Christmas, we can belong to the family of God. Because of Christmas, because of what happened some 2,000 years ago, you and me, we can belong to the family of God. That's amazing. That's extraordinary news, and it's precisely what the Bible tells us this morning. So as we look at this text together, there's sort of three movements we'll, we'll, we'll uh, look at. First is the reality of the light coming in the world. Then we'll consider our response to the light coming in the world. And finally, we'll look together at the result of light coming into the world. So first up, the reality of light coming into the world. Light was coming into the world, the verse says. Yes, it says it was in the world. This is John's version of the Christmas story. As John tells the Christmas story, John's version does not include a nativity scene with shepherds and with wise men. Rather, as he describes what happened some 2,000 years ago, he uses words like light coming into the world. This is a wonderful description for John of Jesus. He is, John says, the true light, or in other words, he says, the real light, the, the true light, the real light. It's a wonderful description of Jesus, and it's one that John uses throughout his gospel over and again. J Jesus himself will describe himself as the light of the world. He is the light. Now, he says he's the true light. He's, he's the true, the real light. Not real as opposed to fake, but, but he is real as opposed to shadowy or insubstantial. He's the real light which stands out in a world that is flooded with lesser lights. And it says that he came to the world, that, that, that word world, the original language is cosmos. And in these five verses, this word world is repeated four times. As good Bible students, as you read your, your Bible, when you see words repeated over and over and over again, you sort of should zoom in. There's something significant there. And one of the questions you should be asking is, what world did he come to? 
What does he mean by world? And there's a, a variety of different ways that this word is interpreted in the Bible. It can mean simply created order, but for John, when he uses it throughout his writing, the term has a more specific meaning, a more narrow focus. Not simply on the universe in general, but rather this specific reference to the created order, which stands in rebellion to the creator. This specifically is referring to humanity. So the, the, the light comes shines in the darkness. It comes to humanity. Now, as you're reading on in the text, you'll see what appears to be maybe a contradiction of sorts. It says that he was coming into the world in verse 9, and then in verse 10, in verse 10 it says that he was in the world. Is this a contradiction? Which one is it? Was he coming into it, or was he already in it? You might find yourself asking. Well, the Bible teaches that one of the unique features one of the fascinating, special characteristics of God is that he is a God who is transcendent, and he's also a God who is imminent. And divine transcendence and imminence are related Christian doctrines. While God is exalted in his royal dignity and exercises both control and authority over all of creation, all of the universe, he is yet... This is what's so remarkable about God. He is yet a very present God in his creation, especially in his people. And he's present with them in a real personal sort of way. God has, it's true, always been involved with his creation. He did not simply set things in motion and then take off, right? But rather, another way of saying it was the light was in the world. Now, if you sort of trace throughout the Old Testament, you can see a variety of ways in which the light was already present in the world. One of the first things that we discover is that God was creator, and through creation, God has revealed himself to mankind. That the light was already able to sort of be seen just by looking at the creation, because God was intimately involved with it. Another way you could see the light was by considering his word, the law. Of God. In Isaiah 42, verse 21, it says, The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and to make it glorious. So the idea is, is that if you wanted to get an idea of who God is, what he is like, his features, his characteristics, you could do so just by opening up the Bible and reading his word. And his light would be shining. He would be present there. You'd be able to see his word himself. But one of the most remarkable ways that God chose to reveal himself, to shine his light, to be in the world, specifically is through his people. In 2 Samuel 7, 23, it says this, and who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed, your, you yourself, from Egypt, a nation and its gods. See, one of the fascinating things about God is he uniquely designed his people to be a way that the world could see him, 
could see his light shining throughout the world, that he had chosen a unique group of people that he would offer his presence to, and they would be set apart. They would be unlike the other nations, unlike the nations of the world. He was already in the world. And this light, which was coming into the world, John says, is the true light, the real deal, genuine, authentic. While the earlier disclosures of God was sort of provisional or anticipatory, this light serves as the full and ultimate self-disclosure of God himself to man. The real true light was coming into the world. And this is reality. This is what Christmas is all about. God himself invading our reality, taking on flesh and blood, becoming like us. This is Christmas. So what's the response? The text goes on and says that there is a unique way that people respond to this truth, to this reality. Specifically in our text, you see that there are sort of three different responses to Christmas. Three different responses to the light coming into the world. Look right there in the second half of verse 10. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Then in verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Three different responses to the light coming into the world. Three different categories of people. The first is the world. Again, this is a term for created order and rebellion to God. He came to humanity, light coming into the world. The creator comes to his creatures. And how do they respond? Well, the text tells us they did not know him. Another way of saying it is they did not recognize him. They could not see, though he was there among them, they could not see him for who he was. Now, I'm going to tell a story. It's one I've told before, but bear with me. I've only met so many celebrities, okay? So I've only got so many stories to work with here, people. Sheesh. A number of years ago, when I was in college, uh, one of my favorite musicians was a man by the name of Victor Wooten. And Victor Wooten is arguably the world's greatest living bass player. I would say he is. He's a phenomenal bass player. And uh, when I was in college, I had an opportunity to see him. He was coming to the University of Iowa. So I got tickets one day. In those days, you actually had a, a real physical ticket, went to the box office down at the IMU and got a piece of paper that allowed me to get admission into his concert later that evening. And then I went about my day going to classes. And I found myself as I often would find myself standing in line at Cookies and More downtown at the Ped Mall. Perhaps you visited this establishment once or twice a week. I don't know. Um, but I'm standing there in line waiting for a cookie. And as I'm standing there, I notice there's an individual who's standing directly in front of me. He, and uh, I, I, I begin to notice that this individual, Victor Wooten, has a very uh, distinct um, figure and just look about him and wears interesting clothes. And I, he had dreadlocks coming out the back of his stocking cap. And I, I was like, I cannot believe that Victor Wooten is standing right in front of me. This is, this is unbelievable, you know? And I'm, I'm like, I'm like a, just so happy right now. This is just unreal. The stars have aligned, you know? And uh, he's standing there and he gets his cookies and turns around and sure enough, it's him. And I'm just like, Victor Wooten. And he's like, yeah, yeah. And I'm just going to shake his hand. Just, I'm just, it's 
so happy to meet. I had no idea what I said, but I was a fumbling idiot probably. So, and then he went away on his way with his cookies. I got my cookies. And I just began to think about how unbelievable is this truth. Victor Wooten, world's greatest living bass player, walking along the streets of Iowa City, standing in line to buy a cookie, and most of the world around him has no idea who he is. How sad, I'm thinking to myself. How sad. I mean, he didn't even pack out the IMU that night. I mean, there's maybe a couple hundred people that were there. You could be walking on the street in the downtown of Iowa City on this day. You could bump into the greatest living bass player and have no idea, not recognize him for who he is. Sad. Not able to enjoy his music. Now, your inability to recognize him for who he is does not change the fact that he's the world's greatest living bass player. But it does mean you miss out on an awesome show. And this is what it's like when Jesus came to the world and the world simply passed him by. Did not recognize him for who he is. That, brothers and sisters, is a great tragedy. It's very sad. Many missed out. It's not the only group of people, and the truth is it actually gets sadder. It goes on to say there's another group of people. Specifically, it says he came to his own. Now, in one sense, all of humanity could be called his own, as he's our creator, and all people are made in his image. However, I believe that this specific reference is a reference specifically about the chosen people of God, the nation of Israel, the ones whom he called out of all the other nations to be his chosen people. He came to them, his own the idea in the Greek here is communicating his property and his people. He came to his own, to his own people. He came to his place and his people. The, the, the place where he should be welcomed, his own people. At home, it's, it's with your family that one would expect to be received, expect to be embraced, expect to be a, a welcome. Now, while this is not always true for many of us, it also was not true for Jesus. He came to his own people. Verse 11 is and has been by many described as perhaps the saddest verse in the entire Bible. The light of the world, which comes to the world through love to give life comes to his own people, the precise people who should have known him, who should have recognized him for who he was, the people who should have been expecting him, have been waiting for him, the people who should have welcomed his arrival and embraced him just as he was. But instead, we're told that they reject him. They mock him. They act as if he's the one who does not belong. There's hints of Genesis 12 in this passage, and we're 
God commissioned Abraham and promised Abraham that he would send him to a place. He would give him a land, and he would make from him a people, a nation. Here, Jesus comes to what should be his place and the people who should be his people, and instead, all he receives is rejection. You know, a number of years ago, it was a good friend of mine who told me a just a really sad story about him growing up. He was an individual who grew up in a rough part of town, and um, he often would spend his day just worried as a little boy about just getting t- picked on and teased and bullied. And one of his habits after school was he would, just the, the amount of anxiety as he would walk home from school, at the end of the day, as the day would get closer, he would begin to plot his path home. How, how do I avoid this certain group of boys who I know they're gonna just target me and chase me down and try to beat the tar out of me? How how do I get home safely? It's always the objective at the end of the day. And one particular day, he tells how he he did what he normally does. He found the boys, and he began to sort of dodge them, and they they caught sight of him a little bit ahead, and they began to chase him home. And as he he runs, he just, they're, they're, they're hot on his trail. And he sees his home in sight, and he gets closer and closer to the door, and he does what he does every day. The door's closed. It's locked, but he knows his mom's inside, so he begins to bang on the door. Let me in, let me in, let me in. Bang, 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 bang. The mom, she's done this many times. She's been in this scenario before. No, she has to open up the door to let the boy in. But as she opens the door just a little bit, it's still latched. She can still see out. She sees him standing there, and she sees the boys just beyond him. And do you know what she does? She closes the door. She locks it, secure, can't come in. Now, for the mom, this was an opportunity to teach this boy a lesson. You have to learn to fight eventually, or they will forever beat you up. You will always be running. This was an opportunity to teach a lesson of how to survive in a broken, fallen, miserable world. And can imagine how the scene played out. He ended up getting beat up right there in front of his own door. The place where he should have been welcomed without question, immediately. Instead, he found a door closed. No embrace, no promise of comfort, no promise of safety and security. All he felt was rejection. Folks, this is a similar response to how Jesus, what he received from his own people. Closed door, complete rejection. Now, the irony of this should not be lost on us. Though he created the world, the world did not recognize him. Though he came to his own, his own did not receive him. And then even more amazingly, even more ironic, God would go on to use humanity's rejection of his son as the means by which they would be accepted by God. And it was through his rejection, through his pain, that we have gained access and acceptance into God's family. How amazing. How amazing. The verse goes on and says there's another group of people. Look at verse 12. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, there is a remnant. There's a group of people who would recognize him precisely for who he is. 
Rather than turning their back on him, rather than slamming the door in his face, they would welcome Jesus into their arms and into their lives. It says that this remnant, this group would receive Jesus. In other words, there were those who, who would encounter Jesus as he gives himself to them and they would welcome them into their hearts. All of Jesus. Now, I think this is a, a point that many of us, at least in our day and age and probably throughout time, have struggled with. Receiving Jesus looks like receiving all of Jesus, not just the comfortable parts of Jesus, not just the, the parts of Jesus that help us feel safe and secure and, and comfortable in our life or the preferred aspects of Jesus, but rather all of Jesus. So when Jesus comes to us as a savior, we welcome him. This receiving Jesus means we welcome his salvation. When he comes to us as a healer, we welcome his healing. If he comes to us as a counselor, we welcome his wisdom and his word. If he comes to us as a king, we welcome his authority and his rule in our life. John Piper says that receiving Christ does not equal a peaceful coexistence with a Christ who makes no claims. And I wonder how, much, how many of us maybe are guilty of thinking welcoming Jesus into our lives simply means sort of coexisting with him peacefully. Where we embrace maybe just a slice of who he is, just the parts that we really feel good about and that make us feel good about ourselves, but rather welcoming all of Christ, even the parts that challenge us, that maybe make us feel uncomfortable, that place demands on our life that sort of cut against what's natural to us. Receiving Jesus is, looks like receiving all of who he is. And then he says it's also those who believe in his name, receiving Jesus and believing in his name. These ideas of receiving and believing Jesus are very related to each other. And John has connected them in other places throughout his gospel. You could do a tour of the book of John and learn more about what the author means when he says, believe in the name of Jesus. In fact, this is the precise reason why John is writing the book. He tells us later on towards the end that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. It's the whole reason he's writing what he's writing. Look at just one verse, John 6, 35. What does it mean to believe? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Believes in me shall never thirst. Believing, according to Jesus, believing in Jesus is not just, as many of us might suspect, sort of an intellectual exercise. Rather, believing in Jesus, according to Jesus, looks more like being satisfied with who Jesus is. Whoever believe in him shall never thirst, where he becomes the nourishment for our souls. He becomes the all-satisfying bread of life. The reception of Jesus takes place in the deep parts of our heart and life. And believing is less like sort of checking a bunch of doctrinal boxes and looks more like placing Jesus precisely where he belongs in the center of our life. So that's what it looks like. We have a choice to make as we consider the reality of Jesus coming to this world, the question for us ought to be, how do I respond to Jesus? Do I recognize him for who he is? Or do I, do I reject him? Or am I tempted to just accept certain aspects of him that fit conveniently in my life? Finally, what's the result of the light coming into the world? Again, look at verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave 
the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor the will of flesh nor the will of man but of God. For those who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave. With those who believe in the name of Jesus, they receive a gift. And it's, a, it's ultimately the gift of grace, a gift that is simply received with the open hands of faith, not earned, not accomplished by us because that's already been earned by him. We simply receive what he gives us freely. It's amazing. He, he's a giving God. And as his people, we are just a receiving people. He gives us the right or the authority and the privilege to become children of God. We have the ability to enter into his family. And this gift, we're told, is a supernatural gift. Belonging to God's family, entrance into God's family is not a natural process. Rather, it's supernatural. This is a supernatural gift. The, the term that's often used in the New Testament is the word of adoption. In verse 13, it says that we were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. This is a supernatural process. Belonging to God as his children, as his sons and daughters, it's a gift. And it becomes our reality, not by being born physically, but by being born again spiritually. Term the new this adoption is all throughout the New Testament. Galatians, just one example, Galatians chapter four, four and five. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son that we might receive adoption as his sons. Now, if anybody here has, I know there's a number of families that have walked through the adoption process and that's the way they've chosen to grow their family. There's some of us that have friends and we can know if you've, if you've been around somebody who's pursued adoption, adoption can be a pricey, a pricey way to grow your family. There's organizations, there's funds that are established to help families afford adoption. It can be so expensive. Spiritual adoption, likewise, comes to us at a very high price. A price so steep that none of us are capable of paying. We are the spiritually adopted children of God. Our Father, only because Jesus Christ, our elder brother, has endured the wrath of God and stood in our place on the cross, died for our sins. It cost him a lot as well. It was a price he was willing to pay. This idea of knowing God as our Father is one that J.I. Packer has written extensively about, and he says that it is so crucial to our understanding of Christianity that you could almost sum up the entirety of Christianity with a simple phrase. What is Christianity? Knowing God as your Father. In many ways, he says, you could judge a person's understanding of what it means to be a Christian by their understanding of what it means to call God their Father. Packer claims that the revelation of God as Father is, in a sense, the climax of all of Scripture. And it's interesting, if you were to go back into the Old Testament and think about how God chose to relate or to reveal himself to his people. Think about Exodus chapter 3 when he commissions Moses to go and deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. One of the questions that's on Moses' mind is, how am I going to tell them who you are? What, what am I going to say? Who, who's, what's your name, essentially? And to Moses, he says, I am who I am. And he also said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me, has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. 
This is my forever name. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. As you read on through the Bible, through the Old Testament, you will see that the word Yahweh, the name Yahweh is what God uses primarily in the Old Testament to refer to himself. This Hebrew word for the self-revealed name of God. The name declared to be this self-existent sovereign, totally free from constraint or by dependence or anything else outside of himself. And as you read on through the Old Testament, thinking about how God revealed himself to his people, one of the primary features of his, of his being, of his essence that he revealed to himself that seems to be at the very surface of everything is that of holiness. He is a God who is sacred, who is unlike man, who is set apart. And so the idea is, is even as you relate to him, as you draw near to him, you, you have to be careful to sort of keep your distance. Know your place while you're in the presence of God. But in the New Testament, in the New Testament, things seem to have changed. The holiness and the sacredness of God are all sort of presupposed. Yet we are given a new name by which we can call God, that of Father. Father becomes for us his Children becomes our covenant name with God. Christians become his sons and daughters, his heirs. Suddenly the stress is no longer on the difficulty of drawing near to God, but on the boldness and the confidence that we have as his children to approach him. Ephesians 3 says, in whom we have boldness. It's Christ, if we're in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. To those who are in Christ, the holy God becomes Father God. We belong to his family. The craving of our hearts to share, to, to, to belong, are met as we find our place in the family of God. Now, the question that we should all be asking ourselves as we reflect on the reality that God welcomes, that's what Christmas is all about, God's found a way to welcome us, sinners that we are, into his presence, into his family. Now the question every single one of us should be asking as we reflect on that reality is, what difference does this make for me? Maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a number of years, and the idea of you following him, the idea of you belonging to his family is elementary. Maybe it's just almost even taken for granted. This is old news. My prayer is for you this morning that it is never old news. What difference does it make that you can call God your father? My believe the, the, the implications of this truth are vast. You know, one of the places that we see not just a need to belong, but also the power of belonging is in the world of education. There's been a great deal of research that has proven, it's been done that shows that in a sense, belonging is, is really an important component of a successful school experience. Students have a need to feel like they belong. And when they do in a school setting, when they feel like they belong there, research shows that there's improved mental health and emotional well-being that that student experiences. There's a boost of self-esteem. There's improved attendance. Seems like that would be an obvious one. If they believe that they belong there, that's their people, that's their place, attendance goes up. 
There are fewer dropouts. There's increased academic success and achievement. The implications, the outcomes of feeling like you belong in a school are endless. What difference does it make for us to know that we belong in God's family? The truth, this truth is deep. It's rich. It's significance. And it's, it's implications as this truth settles into our hearts. There's no end to how this makes a difference for us, that he wants us in his family. If he's our father, then this has a tremendous implication on how we conduct ourselves, how, on how we behave. He, he becomes the one that we imitate. So our character, our choices in life ought to look like his character. He, our, our desire for how we live our life should reflect his will. If God is our father, then, then we should try to make him happy. If he's revealed himself as his loving father to his children, our desire, our heartbeat should be to glorify him in all that we do, to please him. It has implications for how we approach him, how we pray to him, how we can do so with confidence. If God is our father, when he places claims and demands on how we live our life, then it means we can trust him. We can trust him. That even when those demands seem almost too difficult, if he's our father, our good, loving father who knows and wants what's best for his children, then no matter how hard that demand is, we should be able to trust him. If he's our father, then this, this shapes how we relate to one another. We do so as brothers and sisters, a part of the same family, and we want what's good for our brothers and sisters. And finally, at least for our sake this morning, if he's our father and we belong to his family, then we should want others to join. We should want others to experience the blessing, the goodness, the kindness that we do if God is our father. We should want others to join. Now, as I said earlier, this, um, this reality, we get to belong to God's family, was a pricey one. It cost God tremendously. And so we're going to transition now to a time of communion. And as we do, this is an opportunity for us as his children to reflect on the ultimate price Christ paid our elder brother so that we could call God, our Father. He gives us this command in Scripture, and he tells us that as we meet, we are to never forget. This truth is to never grow stale, and that we're actually imploring all of the senses to remind ourselves of the goodness of God and the price it costs for us to be able to call him our Father. And so this meal, is, it's really a family meal. It's a meal that we take together as brothers and sisters, and it's an opportunity for us to reflect on our sins, and the forgiveness that comes only through the blood of Christ. So I'm gonna read these verses and then I'll direct us, we'll take this supper together. It says this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Church, it's the body of Christ given for us. Let's take and eat. The same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the blood of Christ, church, shed for us. Let's take and drink. Now, if there's one thing I would ask for you to just think about, maybe just even now, I'm gonna I'm pray for us in a minute here, and just as we pray, maybe as you leave here, it's to be a great discussion point for your community group if you're in one of those, is what difference? So if today we're focusing on the reality that we can belong to God's family and call him our father, if that's the truth that we're focusing on this morning, what difference does that make for you tomorrow? What does that actually mean for you? When you wake up tomorrow and you get ready for school or for work, how will the way you conduct yourself and walk through your day, how should that truth impact your existence? Something to think about. Now the choir and the worship team is gonna come on up and I'm gonna pray for us. We'll continue to worship God in song. Father God, Lord, we come to you this morning and um, we are, as we reflect on just the Christmas story, um, Lord, we are reminded um, of your great, great love for us. Lord, you are a holy God and you have communicated clearly your truth and your expectations for your people and we are a sinful People. No matter how hard and good we try to be, we can never meet your expectations. Lord, and we recognize that there is a penalty, there is a punishment for that. And ultimately, it's death, eternal separation from you. And it's out of that really difficult place that we find ourselves in that we are overwhelmed with gratitude and humility as we consider how you found a way, how you came to this earth, broke into our world, took on our sins, paid the price that we should pay, that we might have a seat around the family table. Lord, I pray that that truth that we get to call you our Father. You direct us as we pray. You command us that when we pray, we are to say, our Father who art in heaven. But I pray that that truth would settle into all of our hearts and it would, it would transform us. Lord, that it would change our desires. It would change and direct our choices, our behavior as your children. Lord, that we would see our life as an opportunity to make much of you and to bring, bring happiness and, and, and to please you, God. 
Lord, and I pray that you would help us to be a people who live, seek to live as your children. Thank you that your invitation, Lord, is for all. And I just pray that um, if there's any this morning who have not received and have not believed, Lord, I pray that your spirit would prompt them to do just that. Oh, we love you and we magnify your name. Ask these things in the name.